Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about adoption and infertility. Today's show is going to be on interracial adoptive parenting, white parents with brown kids. Here is a sample of what you're going to hear. It has so much to do with um, white guilt, with our feelings about being politically correct. And so I think that we generally move in the direction of trying to push race under the carpet, saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm not a racist, so the proof of that is that I don't identify people by race. Uh, but when you have a child who's African American, uh, that child experiences race every day, every minute of every day. It's a part of your life. Um, and so, if your parents are not identifying race, then then they're giving the message uh, to the child that they're not open to talking about it. Uh, and you have to, you know, your child has to know that you're willing to talk about race with with him or her. I'm Dawn Davenport, the director of Creating a Family. We are the National Adoption and Infertility Education and Support Organization, and you can find us online at creatingafamily.org. Stay tuned for what we hope will be a soon announcement of the launch of our brand-new site. We can hardly await. The champagne is chilling around here. We are a weekly radio show, and we utilize the podcast model to make sh- and to make sure that you automatically hear about each episode. Please subscribe to our show. You can do that on iTunes or on the radio page of our site, creatingafamily.org slash radio show. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Faring Pharmaceutical is pleased to offer their IVF Greenlight program, providing discounts of up to 50% on select IVF products. All cash-paying patients are eligible, and unlike other programs, there are no financial requirements. To get more information, you can go to their website, ivfgreenlight.com, or, of course, you can speak to your doctor for more information. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support from our gold sponsors. And I want to remind you that uh, I know we say this every week, but we truly mean that. Uh, We offer all of our resources without charge to the patient community. But to do that, we, uh, we, as well as everything else, uh, must have money to run. And uh, we couldn't do what we do if we didn't have uh, uh, those in the professional community who believe in what we do. And they believe in our mission of providing unbiased education and support to pre- and post-adoptive families as well as to the patient community. Some of our wonderful gold sponsors include independent adoption centers whose mission is to provide open adoption placement and counseling to birth and adoptive families. They work with families in all 50 states and are fully licensed in California, New York, Florida, Texas, and actually even more than that now. 
We also have Hopscotch Adoptions. They are a national adoption agency with offices in North Carolina and New York, placing children from Bulgaria, Ghana, Georgia, Armenia, Morocco, Serbia, and Ukraine. We also have Spence Chapin. They are a full-service adoption agency, bringing over 100 years of experience to a new direction, creating permanent, loving families for children most in need, and that includes older kiddos, siblings, and children with special needs. And Spence Chapin has done something even, even more unique. They have eliminated the financial barrier by providing no-fee adoption services for families who can consider opening up their lives and their hearts to this very special population. We also have other great sponsors whose generosity allows us to bring you this show. We ask that when choosing an adoption service provider, please consider choosing one from the Creating Creating a Family directories, which you can find on the service provider page of our site. You can search by location, services provided, uh, countries, uh, types of adoption, just a whole host of factors that we think are important when choosing. And by using these directories, you support those who support us, and we thank you. On today's show, as we will be talking about interracial adoptive parenting, white parents with brown kids. Our guest is Dr. Marlene Fine. She is Professor Emerita from Simmons College in Boston, Massachusetts, specializing in issues related to race, racial identity, and interracial communication. She is the co-author with her spouse, Fern Johnson, of The Interracial Adoption Option, Creating a Family Across Race Lines. Oh, no, across race. Sorry about that. She is the white adoptive mom of two African-American sons, both adopted as infants and now ages 24 and 25. She is also a facilitator with the YW Boston Community Dialogue on Race and Ethnicity. Welcome, Dr. Marlene Fine, to Creating a Family. Thank you so much for having me today. It's really nice to be here. Well, Marlene, I, I finished the book, The Interracial Adoption Option, uh, last night, in fact. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, uh, I, I thought it was both well-researched and well-written, and I read a lot of books, so <laughs> that's actually uh, a pretty high compliment in, uh, in, in, in my book. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Really appreciate that. You and, and your wife are both academics specializing in issues related to race, racial identity, interracial communication, and things such as that. So I'm going to guess that you probably went into the idea of interracial adoption thinking that you knew it all and that you really wouldn't le- need to learn much more. Um, is that how it turned out for you? Well, that is what we thought when we started. Um, not that we thought we knew the answers to everything, but we really thought we were well prepared um, compared to a lot of other people who we knew were undertaking this process. And uh, it very quickly hit us in the face that uh, uh, we did not know as much as we thought we did and that there were so many issues that we either hadn't thought about or we had thought about in ways that were quite intellectual, things that we had read about, knew about, and mm-hmm. thought we knew what it would be like to experience. But the experience was very, very different. Um, and and so, you know, it was quite a long <laughs> journey for us, the process, um, you know, to, to learn about uh, parenting children of color. And, um, you know, I think if, if I had to think about what the, the most critical central issue I had to learn about, it was white privilege and what my white privilege meant. So, you know, white privilege, um, what Peggy McIntosh talks about is this knapsack of assets that white people carry around with them, you know, that, that we get to unpack 
at various times, you know, things um, as as small as being able to walk into a drugstore and buy bandages that match our skin to things as large as knowing that as long as I have the money, I can buy a house anywhere I want to buy a house. And so I have those privileges. I knew about them. I used to teach them to my students um, and talk about privilege. And then all of a sudden I realized I didn't understand what that meant until I was a member of a multiracial family and I didn't always have my privilege with me. Um, you know, and it was I, um, very a startling. Point. Well, and, and because uh, because those of us who are white walk around with this privilege, we don't recognize it. It's it's a part right. of our life experience. And it's only until you step out of this that, that you can become a multiracial family that it becomes obvious. And I, I think that is... It's such a good point. I wanted to, it's not uncommon for us here at Creating a Family to hear prospective adoptive parents say that they're open to adopting a biracial baby, but not a full African-American baby, and that raises the issue of skin tone. Uh, tell us about your experience, uh, I think it was even prior to your adopting of your first son, when it that, that it struck you uh, also that, that skin tone, uh, was something that you hadn't thought that you might have cared about and had to analyze why you cared about it. Absolutely. So um, we had decided we were going to adopt an African-American child, and um, we had been to some conferences. And we, in fact, had already um, been asked to join a small group of other women who uh, either had already adopted um, a child of color or um, were about to. And um, so we knew this small group and uh two women had adopted a young uh african american uh, girl an infant and uh we went to visit and we spent some time with them during the day and then when we got home uh fern turned to me and said oh you know i i hadn't thought about it but did you notice how dark amira was and as we began to chat, it became clear that we were taken aback by how dark she was. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, the issue of skin color is one that we knew both in terms of white's reaction to it, and skin color also is is a marker of hierarchy within the black community. And so it's also an issue that we had spent a lot of time talking about but really had never confronted for ourselves before. And we stayed up all night talking about this. And finally, you know, each of us had this epiphany looking at each other and saying, this is the most ridiculous conversation, you know, that um, skin tone is no different. Whether your child is light or dark, your child is African-American, and that's something you have to confront and um, be willing to say that is part of my family now and I recognize that and I embrace that. The the hardest kids to place in infant adoption in the US are full African American boys. Let me hesitate yes. let me quickly also say that this does not mean that families are not available. But the reality is the wait is usually shorter for families open to adopting black baby boys. Yes. Why do you think that is and 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 how does gender uh, how does the gender of a child? We, we've talked some about uh, the full African American part, but what I'm focusing on now is the boy part. So, so how does the gender of a child affect issues specific to transracial adoption? 
Well, let let me say something first about adoption in general, because I think that girls are the preferred child uh, mm-hmm. in adoption generally, and then that is just heightened in um, interracial adoption, particularly for African American children. So um, our our experience when we were going through the sort of pre-adoptive um, period was that so many of the families who wanted to adopt were adopting after having gone through long, um, um, long-term attempts at um, becoming pregnant, and that when we had conversations with these couples, that it was primarily the woman who was really pushing for adoption and the wife rather than the husband. And the conversations really um, gave us this kind of sense that, you know, women were looking for a daughter um, and that there was something about raising a daughter that was, you know, very satisfying to have this child who in many ways would be in your gender image, if not in your physical image. And predisposition, I think, for um, for adoptions to be focused on girls rather than boys. But when you look at um, the situation for African-American boys, and I think now is an incredible time to be looking at that given uh, mm-hmm. what's happening around the country, uh, particularly in Ferguson and in New York, um, we know that there are these stereotypes about black boys being difficult, um, mm-hmm. that black boys are dangerous, that mm-hmm. they grow up uh, to be things that you need to be afraid of. Um, mm-hmm. So you have the fear on the one hand, and then on the other hand, you have the very real knowledge on the part of um, both black parents and white parents that black boys are going to face a very, very difficult time in society. And, um, you know, can you really um, deal with that? And, you are know, you prepared to be can you, effect, are, can you be are, an effective parent? Do you know what to teach? Can blah, blah, you be blah. an yeah. effective parent um, with that? And I think even for black adoptive parents, um, there's a fear that um, not just um, can can you be effective, but, you know, what kind of world are you bringing this child into? Not just adoptive parents. Black uh, biological parents Absolutely. talk about this. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. How do we raise our our sons? Uh, to be safe, to be proud. Uh, how, how do we how do we de- equip them uh, to yes. deal with some of the issues uh, you talk about? Driving while black, or you know, yes. DWB <laughs> and, and shopping while black, SWB, which is you know, uh, is, are terms that you hear uh, amongst uh, uh, blacks, whether they're adoptive parents or, or uh, parents through birth. Uh, how Absolutely. do we raise our boys? Yeah, and um, you know, DWB and SWB were. Um, terms that I was familiar with for my students. So, you know, I had uh, many black students who would, you know, talk about uh, these things. I taught um, in Boston for most of my career um, and, you know, had lots of students of color during that time. But again, you know, the reality is is so different than just talking about an issue. And I remember when uh, our sons were relatively young, they were, you know, still in grade school, uh, the parents of uh, one of our son's uh, best friends, uh, who were African-American, uh, said that um, their older son was learning how to drive, but they weren't going to let him get a license, and we were shocked and said, why not? And they said, well, we've had the conversation with him about driving while black, and we don't think he gets it. And so mm-hmm. until he gets his temper under control, he is not going to drive a car. 
Um, and, uh, you know, that was our first understanding that, oh, it's not just that you have to know about this. We have to have that conversation with our children, and we have to be assured that they know how to handle themselves if they're pulled over by a police officer. And you mentioned something uh, in the book about when you realized that your white friends didn't get it. If you just if you said this to your white friends, they would think they would be sympathetic, but they would think it's a rare occurrence, or that your child. Yeah. They may not say this to you, but in the back of their mind, they're thinking that your child probably did something, perhaps innocently, to attract this yeah. negative attention. Um, so, so in many ways, you're facing this alone, other than through your uh, through your black friends or through your uh, white friends who have a, uh, are also transracial adoptive parents. Yeah, that's and that's something I think that um, adoptive white parents, uh, prospective adoptive white parents, really need to think about. That um, you know, it's not that your your social circle, if your social social circle is entirely white, won't be supportive of you. Um, I mean, our experience has really, um, with very rare exceptions, been completely positive. So you know, the people around us, the neighborhoods we've lived in over the years. Our neighbors, um, people we've worked with, everyone's been terribly supportive. But whites often simply don't understand the issues. And mm-hmm. so when you talk about something, um, the issue becomes your personal issue. Um, uh-huh. we, in, the, in the book, you know, we talk about different forms of racism and we talk a bit about institutional structural racism. And I, right. I do think that one of the issues that is a real differentiator between whites and blacks in the United States is that African Americans, other people of color, really understand the structural dimensions. They understand institutional racism. And most often when they're talking about racism, that's what they're talking about, institutional Mm -hmm. racism, the ways in which certain institutions, certain groups um, privilege one group of people over another group of people, um, where certain resources and assets are given. Well, um, think about um, the banking industry, for example, and um, how much more difficult it has been for many generations now for blacks to get loans. And they pay higher interest rates often because, you know, certain districts are redlined. Um, You look at schools and school resources. And, um, you know, there's a recent study in Boston which shows that um, the the city schools are more segregated today than they were pre-busing um, in Boston, mm-hmm. and so and and you see the difference in resources that are allocated in the educational system, for example, to uh, the schools in Boston versus what's um, available in um, the the suburbs here in the white suburbs, and the differential in um, uh, student achievement. Uh, which to a large extent is really the result of lack of resources and access to resources. Um, And for for whites, racism is usually about personal feelings or actions. And so they see racism as interpersonal racism. Is someone being physically or verbally abused because of their race? And um, I, it's not that that doesn't happen, but in, institutional racism is the much more serious and larger issue that we really have to address, and whites tend not to see it. Um, 
you know, this is something that I also experienced when I was um, a young academic, and um, I was very much involved in doing feminist work as an academic. And often when I would talk about feminist issues and issues related uh, to women, people would respond to me. My students and colleagues would respond and say, well, that's your personal issue. That's really not a problem that all women face. And it's, I think it's very hard for people to see larger structural issues, much easier to focus on the personal. Yeah, I, I, think, you're, I think you're right. And, and I think you're right that that's a, um, a, a distinction that we have between blacks and whites, uh, that we, we simply don't, um, we don't see it. And, and because we, we, cause we live in it, but blacks do see it because they, they also live in it. You are listening to Creating a Family. Talk about adoption and infertility. Today we're talking about interracial adoption, well, actually interracial adoption and interracial adoptive parenting. We're talking with Dr. Marlene Fine, author of, or co-author of, The Interracial Adoption Option. We, one of the things we do here at Creating a Family is offer support, both pre-adoption as well as post-adoption, and our primary way of doing that is online. And we, uh, at, one of the things that we do is have an online support group. Uh, we would love to have you join us. The support group is a private group, or not private, closed group is the correct term, on Facebook. We'd love to have you join us there. The easiest way to find that group is to type in the words, Creating a Family, in the Facebook search box. The two things will pop up. One will be our Creating a Family page. We would love it if you would like that page. Then after you like the page, the second thing that will pop up is the group. Um, once the uh, group pops up, you could, it's a closed group, so you'll have to um, ask to join. We will let you in, uh, and uh, and we would love to have you actually be a, a part of our group. Um, now, going back to the other type of racism, uh, Marlene, that you talked about, that I think is important as parents for us to identify, and that is the internalized racism. Uh, yes, can yes. you talk a little about that and how that influences parenting? Absolutely. So internalized racism is when members of a group who experience racism begin to internalize those beliefs about themselves. Um, and we, we talk in the book, we refer to a very classic study done in the 1940s uh, by two African-American sociologists who asked young uh, children to play with black dolls and white dolls and which dolls they preferred. And, of course, the children, white and black, preferred the white dolls. Um, and so, you know, we have this kind of image of um beauty that's defined by whites and as young black children take on that belief they begin to internalize that racism for themselves and that's something that white parents of black children really need to think about and work on all the time uh, to ensure that a child really um, is proud of being black and proud of the physical characteristics, proud of the culture, um, uh, and, you know, has a, a very positive sense of self uh, and doesn't take on the negative um, assumptions that are sort of out there in the larger culture. Well, let's talk some about, because you spend a, a fair amount of time in the book talking about uh, racial identity. What exactly do you mean by racial identity? 
And, well, and then I let me say, you, I, both, oh. both what do you actually mean and then you actually break it down into the different developmental stages of how children uh, form their racial identity. So tell us what you mean by it and then tell us the stages. Sure. So by racial identity, um, we are talking about the individual's sense of self as a person who is raced. So, you know, what what does that mean? I mean, our personal identities are all very complex. So if I think about my own identity, for example, um, it comprises the fact that I'm a woman. Um, so I have a gender identity. I have an identity as a mother. I have an identity as a person who is Jewish. Um, I have um, an identity as part of my particular family, uh, and and the various people who are in that family who have shaped my identity. I have an identity as a white person. As an adult, I have an identity as part of a multiracial family. And so my I don't have this kind of, you know, um, identity that sees me as a white person because I'm not anymore. Um, so, so we have this very complex set of that make up our identity, and the racial part of that has to do with, you know, where our race positions us, and um, h- how we see ourselves in terms of that identity. And so, it becomes really important to ensure that your child sees himself positively in terms of a racial identity. Um, and as, as I said before, feels proud of how he or she looks. Um, the skin color, uh, the hair texture, um, facial features, and also the cultural background and the history and um, the contributions of African Americans uh, to the world and to the culture uh, generally here in the United States. Uh, And so I think that's kind of broadly what we mean by racial identity. Um, And racial identity um, develops uh, for all children uh, in stages. And initially, when a child is very young, um, a child becomes aware of skin color. And I think this is something, you know, that um, we often believe isn't true. You know, I think as adults, um, we're often, um, or we often want to say that, oh, well, kids don't see color at all. And that's not true. They do. Because as young kids, that's in fact all they see. Uh, They see it as a physical characteristic. Someone's black and they're not black or someone's brown. You know, my my kids used to joke with um, me when uh, they were very young. And, and, you know, we'd be standing looking in a mirror and I would talk about, you know, their beautiful brown skin and I'm white. And um, they'd look at me and say, no, you're not. You're pink. You don't look white. Because for for kids, it really is the, the physical characteristics. And so uh, that's what they're focused on. And um, it's important, I think, to sort of take that at face value when they're young because that's all they're commenting on. Uh, so it was often the case that when um, w- we would be out with the boys, um, someone might say, a child, a small child might say, um, who are you? And I'd say, oh, well, I'm his mother. And the child would say, no, you can't be. You're white. He's black. And so you, you know, just have a little conversation about, oh, I'm his adopted mother. Uh, But, you know, not to assume that a child means anything more by it than Mm -hmm. identifying physical characteristics, but to recognize that your child is going to ask questions about that because 
your child looks different from you. Um, mm-hmm. As children get older, um, around six years old, they begin to have the ability to make inferences. And at this point, uh, the next stage of racial identity um, emerges, and children are able to look at certain characteristics of people and make inferences from that. So they might look around them and uh, notice that they have a number of um, Asian uh, friends uh, who are all playing the violin, and they then assume that Asians are good at violin playing. That's something that they're particularly good at. And at at this point, as they begin to make those assumptions um, and the, those inferences, not assumptions, um, they become aware of these differences among people, but they are not at a stage yet where they really understand prejudice. And so um, prejudice is something that is very um, difficult for them uh, to deal with at this stage. And um, they can get quite emotional about it. We tell a story in the book about uh, the son of um, friends of ours, uh, and um, he is of Iranian background, and he was the best friend of our oldest child in school, and uh, they did a a unit in class when uh, they were fairly young um, on uh, Martin Luther King's birthday, and we got a call that night from uh, the mother of uh, the young boy uh, saying that he had come home crying and she couldn't get him to stop crying because in doing the unit he realized that the people who were being persecuted that he was learning about were his friend, William, our son. And he just couldn't understand and cope with that. It was just too overpowering for him. And it was interesting, you know, uh, we then went in um, with his parents uh, and to talk to the teacher about it and became aware that she really had no understanding that it might be an emotional topic for children, hmm. you know, to be talking about uh, racism. So really totally un- unprepared for it. Mm-hmm. At the next stage, um, your child uh, at around age 10 actually becomes aware of how other people perceive them. Uh, That's, you know, the stage in development where kids really become uh, very socially conscious, um, uh, uh, consciousness about themselves and worry a lot about how other people are perceiving them. And that's when racism really begins to rear its head because your child begins to experience how other people may be thinking about African Americans and then they take that on for themselves. And that's when it becomes really, really important um, for parents to be open to conversations with kids about racism. Um, And that's very hard for white parents. You know, when a child comes home and says to you, this happened to me at school and I'm really upset about it, um, you know, if you haven't experienced it, the inclination is to minimize it in some way or to try to just make them feel better about it Um, or, in some cases, to simply get very defensive about it because we all carry around a lot of guilt as whites. Um, And so it's very hard not to be 
defensive when you're talking about racism. And so um, at this stage, it's very important to be open to conversations about racism with your kids. Um, And then finally, when kids are teenagers, uh, that's when they begin to explore their identities um, and and to take on different kinds of identities. And so uh, it becomes important to encourage them to do that. If, if your child wants to um, do something different with his or her hair, uh, to wear different kinds of clothes, uh, to begin to explore the, the roots of African-American uh, musical forms, just a variety of ways of saying, this is my racial identity and I am proud of it. What are some things that parents, some practical things, practical ideas that parents can do at each of the stages to help facilitate their their children developing a healthy sense of who they are, uh, identified by the, in, in in who they are racially, I should say. Well, I, I think that the the very first thing that we can do as parents is to be very open and honest about differences. So from the time, you know, our children were young, we talked a lot about differences in in skin color and even things that um, they might not understand at a young age in talking about African Americans, but it becomes a part of your everyday conversation. Um, We did um, a lot, and I think parents can do a lot, to create a home environment that when a child looks around, looks welcoming to them, having pictures on the wall that represent black art, uh, black faces, um, showing um, videos, DVDs. I'm dating myself when I say videos. Uh, DVDs. <laughs> no, videos, not <laughs> DVDs. <laughs> uh, VCR, um, VCRs. Exactly, exactly. Um, uh, you know, watching television shows, uh, seeing films, uh, but making sure that the images are there. Uh, we talk in the book again, you know, it's another example of our naivete uh, about uh, decorating our Christmas tree uh, at home holiday time. Um, um, My partner is uh, Lutheran, and um, so we wanted to put some black ornaments on, and, you know, that's the first time we realized that when you, you know, go to buy ornaments in a um, Massachusetts store, you're not going to find black ornaments, or at least, you know, 26 years ago, uh, we couldn't do that. And uh, it's much easier now uh, to uh, to buy those kinds of things. And even if they're not available in your area, they're available on the Internet. But, you know, making sure that um, we had a black angel at the top of our tree and a black Santa Claus and, you know, a variety of, of things that would be around the house that reflected um, black tr- um, culture, black faces, black traditions, um, that was all very important. I'll throw one other out that is um is I think it's I'm a huge believer in reading to children and yes. having children's books with not just black characters but with diverse characters of all sort um Absolutely. to show that as well as to show that families look different but that also heroes look different and villains look different yes. you know that yes. uh, I think that's hugely important and quite frankly very easy to do now I think so we've we've certainly made large uh strides uh, I shouldn't say easy. Uh, I think if you put your mind to it, I think it's uh, the books are available now. It may absolutely, not have been absolutely. Um, and you know, and it becomes something that you also want to be vigilant about, not just for your own family, but 
you know, making sure that you see those same kinds of images reflected in their school books. Um, and, you know, having that conversation with teachers and, um, you know, other people in the school community uh, to ensure that your child is constantly exposed and other children are exposed uh, to right. a diverse set of images. So uh, that's that's really important. Um, some other things that parents uh, can do, um, I, I think, are really have to do with open communication so that your kids from a very young age need to understand that you are willing to talk about race at any time and and to really be um, open about it, non-defensive about it, that um, it's okay to talk to us. Um, and And we want you to talk to us if you experience anything. Um, and when um, kids are uh, fairly young, I think. Uh, you know, we started to just have conversations about um, race. So um, if we were sitting at dinner and, you know, something might have happened in the news, uh, we would initiate a conversation about it uh, so that, you know, it might be that, oh, we just, you know, have a new governor that's been elected here in Massachusetts and it happens to be an African-American man and uh, he's the first African-American governor in the state of Massachusetts. And, you know, so let's talk about that. Um, and open up those conversations. And then, of course, as kids get older, uh, you can have um, more in-depth, more serious conversations with them that are about racial issues. Uh, Do you find that white parents tend to avoid, if they were speaking of somebody, uh, let's uh, tend to avoid identifying people by race. Do you find that that is, and is that something that you think that that, uh, we should avoid? Yes. Um, you know, I think that's that's a really good point. And again, it, it has so much to do with um, white guilt, with our feelings about being politically correct. And so I think that we generally move in the direction of trying to push race under the carpet, saying, well, you know, I'm I'm not a racist, so the proof of that is that I don't identify people by race. Uh, but when you have a child who's African American, uh, that child experiences race every day, every minute of every day. It's a part of your life. Um, and so, if your parents are not identifying race, then then they're giving the message uh, to the child that they're not open to talking about it. Uh, and you have to, you know, your child has to know that you're willing to talk about race with with him or her. You know, I I um wrote an article, wrote a blog uh, a while back on a different twist on internet on uh, transracial adoption about uh, uh that black families who adopt white children and their experience and there was a line that ah. uh one of the uh fathers uh said and uh it was an interesting one he said I it, until we got our daughter who was white and he was black um, I never realized how often I, I had, how often we talked about white people and, and and talked about them in ways that weren't necessarily flattering. It was an interesting. Yeah. It was just an interesting thing yeah. that, and, and I don't know if. Uh, so I wonder is, I don't know that white families, most white families would feel comfortable talking negatively about blacks, but it seems like they just don't identify race at all. 
Right. No, I think I think that's a really wonderful contrast. Um, you know, I do uh, uh, dialogues as part of the the YW Boston series of dialogues on race and ethnicity, and and so those generally involve getting uh, diverse groups of small groups of people together to just explore issues of race uh, through a series of experiential um, exercises that they do. And it, it's always fascinating to me uh, how many times uh, a white person, uh, through some sort of exercise, will process the exercise. And then when we're talking in the larger group, say something like, well, you know, um, we didn't talk about race at all in my group. And so, you know, this is a, a great example of how, you know, race just isn't important. And then I'll turn to um, a black person in the room, you know, who is in a group that was... Um, um, mixed or, or perhaps all black, and uh, say, "Did you talk about race?" He said, "Well, of course. You know, I wake up every morning thinking about race, and it's just this totally different experience every day of life, and that's what makes it, I think, so hard for blacks and whites to really understand each other." Um, and so, I, I think you're absolutely right. There's this tendency on the part of white parents to not want to talk about race because they think there's something wrong or racist about doing it, and blacks, on the other hand, talk about it all the time. And I think it's often a surprise to white people um, because we, you know, we think about racism uh, as, you know, whites directing negative feelings towards blacks um, to recognize that a lot of black people say a lot of not nice things about white people. But, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, as a parent, how do you draw the line? Because one of the things that I think many parents are afraid of is they, they don't want to over-focus on race. They don't want right. to make their kids right. uh, uh, overly sensitized or overly – so how do you – how much is too much? Or, or can you – is there no such thing as too much since our children are, are living that experience? Yeah, that's a really good question, and, and I think really hard. I don't know the answer to that. Um mm-hmm. I I do think that there is a way to go too far because you you want your kids to somehow come out of you know their their developmental experiences in their in their family with their larger community feeling proud of who they are feeling comfortable in their own skin knowing how to cope with racism when they encounter it and yet not be paralyzed by that mm-hmm. and not be thinking about it so much all the time that they can't function day to day um making decisions moving on with their lives not paralyzed and overpowered um mm-hmm. By racism, so, because what we want uh, to do I, is empower them, uh, not yes. disempower them. We want to to yes. know that they have skills to be able to handle this, and that many other strong uh, uh, black people have faced this before and have come out on the other yes. side, and and that yes. they can too. That type of thing. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and so you know, it's 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 really important not to walk away from the conversations about race, uh, because you do have to prepare your children for a world in which race will matter, um, and and 
matter a lot. Uh, but on the other hand, you also want them to, uh, you know, be able to move forward uh, and, as I said, not not feel paralyzed by what m- they might encounter. Um, to feel, to feel positive. To, exactly. Uh, let's go back to, to uh, um, you've raised uh, two black boys, now, now men, um, young men, uh, and how did you help prepare them to face racism, to face DWB, driving while black, and, and SWB, you know, shopping while black? How did you, uh, what were those conversations? I assume it took place through conversations, but maybe you used other resources as well to help prepare your sons to be strong black men um, in America? No, I think it was primarily through conversations um, in terms of the, the early preparation. You know, as the boys got older, um, you know, both of them in school did a variety of, of projects. Um, and I suppose when they were younger, we directed them towards projects that allowed them to explore um, African-Americans, um uh, African American history, and then um, you know, uh, one of our sons did a major project on Langston Hughes, and um, uh, if they had to choose uh, explorers or heroes or, or various people, we you know would encourage them to choose African Americans, and so uh, they would um, grow up. We hoped with a sense of um, uh, African Americans who uh, were able to succeed, achieve. Um, and you know, be be proud of that. But the the other, um, you know, the issues about being prepared for racism, I think, were much more about having conversations with them, uh, talking with them um, about that. And and then I think also it's important to ensure that they are with. And, and there are a variety of ways to do this, um, but but that they have a support group of other. Um, people of color that they can turn to um, for that kind of support and sustenance through difficult times and to get, you know, a better understanding of this. Um, And you know from reading our book that, you know, we made the choice not to live in a community uh, that was particularly racially diverse. Um, In in Massachusetts, it's very difficult uh, to uh, find communities that are racially diverse and have good schools. And uh, we, after you know many conversations with friends of color, decided that it was most important to ensure that the boys had access to really fine education, uh, and that educational opportunities would um, give them the best chance in life. Uh, so we made that decision, but that meant that we had to ensure that there were ways that they were going to have um, friends. Uh, who were African American, uh, and so you know we stayed very close with our adoption group, um, so that they grew up with other young people uh, who were also African American, uh, and uh, we tried to do you know as much as possible to um, ensure that they were involved in various activities where they would have um, some friends of color. Um, what about adult role models for your son? Because sons, because it yeah. occurs to me that no matter how much we talk. Uh, for those of us who walk around in white skin, we haven't experienced what our, our children, sons and daughters of color, are going to experience, and that the best people uh, to help us, to help our children as well as to help our children, are other adults of color. Um, what are some ways that you reached out and found role models, or, or uh, adult men and women uh, uh, of color, that could be uh, 
mentors, advisors uh, to your sons? Yes, yes. Um, really good question. Um, so, and, and of course, we've had the sort of uh, double whammy of not having a male role model in the family. Uh, and so, you know, uh, we, it was really important for there to be African-American uh, men in their lives. So we were fortunate to have um, several families who uh, were family friends long before we had children um, who were African-American. And so uh, we, you know, called on those men uh, to be available to the boys um, we have uh, other friends who uh, joined uh, Big Brothers Big Sisters and um, asked that the Big Brother assigned to uh, their children uh, be an African-American man, uh, and so, you know, to ensure that there would be adult role models. Um, uh, both Fern and I became very comfortable asking um colleagues who were African-American, African-American men, uh, for advice on things or um, asking them if, you know, if if one of our sons was experiencing some particular issue. One of our sons um, has uh, beard problems, uh, typical for African-American men, and was experiencing some difficulties with that. And uh, so, you know, I asked a colleague uh, who had had similar problems if he would spend some time, you know, just talking uh, through this with him. Um, we made sure that the boys uh, always went um, from the time they started having haircuts to a black barber. Um, and, um, you know, it, it's really interesting in the black community. The barbershop really is not just the place where you get your haircut, but it's a kind of social gathering place. Um, and so, you know, there'd be lots of conversations with the black barber and, and people who were in the barber shop about issues related to, you know, growing up black and male. Uh, so, um, but it, but it is something you have to really think about because for most of us as whites, um, and I, I actually shouldn't say this just in terms of whites. It's, it's often true for um, people of color. We tend to live in communities surrounded by other people who look just like us. Yeah, that's very true. And so, yeah, and so it's just it it is, you know, often the case that those role models just aren't available in your daily life. They're just not there uh, because you're living in communities where um, there are just people like you, white people. You know, and, and it's an interesting. I was glad you brought up the 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 issue of uh, quality of schools versus uh, uh, diversity of neighborhoods. I see that topic coming up come up not infrequently uh, in our online support group, uh, which you can find on Facebook. It's creating a family is the title, um, and it's a it's a conundrum, shall we say, that a lot of adoptive parents. Well, quite frankly, not just adoptive parents, parents of children with color, regardless of if it's adopted yes. or, or through birth, face, yes. and that's the issue of, but it's a particular particular issue for adoptive parents because if if uh, if the child is of our same race, if we are black and our kids are black, we can provide that role, those role models, but uh, and that diversity, and, and you know, uh, because we are that race. But so it's more it's a more of an issue for adoptive parents because they're actively seeking that out. But the reality is it's and it's not a good reality, but it is the reality that often uh, that you've got to choose. It's hard to find racially diverse uh, neighborhoods. Not impossible, but you've got to do the looking uh, yes. where the, the child where, where the neighborhood schools are of a uh, are 
are of the highest quality or quality high enough that you feel like your child will get a decent education. And some and and I've seen parents uh, fall on both sides of that, that, where they think that diversity will be more important. Therefore, they're going to sacrifice some of, uh, in the education realm. Uh, and others, right. as you say, no, I'm not going to sacrifice the education. What was your thought process there that said, if I have to choose, uh, I'm going to choose education over uh, diversity in, in our living arrangements? Um, and, and before I tell you our thought process, I do want to say that I don't think there's a right answer here. So I don't want mm-hmm. to presume that the decision we made was the right decision. Good point. Um, mm-hmm. I, ju- I do think, however, that people need to be conscious of, of this and, and exactly. to think it through. Um, so part of uh, the decision-making for us was actually already done because I worked in the city in Boston, but Fern worked in Worcester, um, which is an hour and a half to two hours away from the city. And so we really needed to be, and, and she was a, a senior administrator, a vice president of a university, and so um, she could not live as far away as Boston. So if you're looking for a diverse community in Massachusetts, you're going to find it in Boston, in one of you know the, the city um, neighborhoods, and that's it. You're not going to find it anywhere else. Um, and so, um, or you might find it in Worcester or Springfield in, in, in the inner cities there. Uh, but again, I worked in, in Boston. So we needed to find a place that was, you know, halfway between. So we we moved right before we adopted our first child. And uh, we did some research to make sure that the community um, had some some diversity, although it, it as it turned out, when we moved there, uh, the numbers that we had looked up didn't look much like um, where we were living, uh, which was essentially a, a white community. And um, we thought we understood schools and uh, what makes for a good school. And we were really surprised once we moved how the numbers didn't tell the full story in terms of what we were moving into. And I will say, however, that we had a wonderful experience in the first community that we lived in when our kids were young. Um, uh, it, it was just a very warm, embracing community. It was a place where we actually had sidewalks. We live in the country now, so no sidewalks. Um, but we had sidewalks and um, children you know, uh, moved in and out of each other's homes uh, with ease all the time. Uh, parents uh, were very um, watchful of um, your kids, uh, so you could always feel that your children were safe when they were outside. And our kids really loved it. Uh, it was a great experience. But we you know, soon discovered that we really didn't want the boys uh, to go through school in the public schools in the community we were in. It turned out to be um, a community that was... Um, it was working class with a fair amount of money that came from the trades. And while we didn't think that, you know, it was important for our kids to go on to Harvard or Yale, um, we did want them in a community where people had aspirations that their kids would, in fact, do something like that. Um, And it turned out that wasn't what the community aspired to. Uh, And so, you know, it it was a community where 
Um, many of the young people went to two-year colleges. Uh, some went to four-year colleges. Um, very few uh, went to um, Ivy League schools. Uh, and we began to get a sense that there wasn't much of a push uh, for kids to really achieve. Yet in our conversations with African-American friends, uh, what they said to us was, you know, you're going to struggle all the time with your children uh, to make sure that people in school set high enough aspirations for them. You know, that's the biggest issue, I think, for um, African-American kids in school. And, you know, it's setting high enough aspirations um, because teachers tend to say, oh, they're doing well enough. That's Another example okay. of institutionalized racism. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. You have the conversation with a, a teacher after your child has gotten, you know, a B minus in a in a class, and you say, you know, uh, can you tell me what's happening here? And the teacher says, Oh, I think he's doing well. And it's like a mm -hmm. B minus. No, I don't think it is. And you know, you have to be careful because y you can't assume that your child's going to get an A in everything or ought to get an A in everything. Yeah, uh, our so children are not, not about... all brilliant. Yeah, we may think right. they are. Exactly. The truth is, you know, our kids are not all brilliant. They're not all brilliant. And, and so, um, you know, again, it's that balance that you're looking for. You want to set the aspirations high, uh, but on the other hand, you don't want them to be unrealistic. And, and as a white parent, well, I think this is true for, for black parents also, um, you know, you're constantly questioning that balance. You know, is it, mm -hmm. is it that the aspirations high, aren't high enough, or is it that, you know, my child isn't going to achieve beyond that point, isn't, you know, really capable of doing that. Uh, mm -hmm. And so you're constantly questioning that. But anyway, we knew um, from our conversations with African-American friends that it was critical that they, the boys be in schools where they would really be pushed, um, where people were going to have high expectations for them. So we made the decision initially to put them in private school, and then when we were able to get the resources together, um, we moved to a community where um, we knew they could go to public school because the public schools were, were really fine. So that was, you know, for us, the decision was really about what can we do to ensure that that our sons will have the best possible chance to succeed. And, you know, we're just believers that education is what ensures that. Um, and I will say that uh, what, what I have heard other families who are wrestling with this as well, um, some decide that they would uh, they want to. Well, some are very fortunate to find great schools in diverse neighborhoods, and that's yes, that's yes. terrific, uh, and that's terrific for you know, for all the families that are living there. Um, others who are finding that the schools don't have as good a test scores or whatever they're using as their measure of, of quality for the schools. Uh, in, but choose to live in a diverse neighborhood, but with the thought that if they, uh, when their children reach middle school or high school, that they uh, will look for a magnet school or they will find a, they, they search around until, or the assumption is that they will be able to find a challenging school for their yes. child at that point. So I, that's yes. another yes. way yes. Of, that I've heard of families uh, and some have the uh, money to send their children to private schools, so they, they want to have their children uh, and, and their value system aligns with sending their child to a private school, and they want their children to be in a diverse neighborhood, so they've got diversity on that end because, and some, quite frankly, some, some private schools are very diverse. 
Uh, so it can yes. work out. Yeah. Let me say that you are listening to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and infertility, and today we're talking about interracial adoptive parenting. We primarily keep in touch with our audience through our twice-weekly e-newsletter. We let you know about the latest developments in the world of adoption or adoptive parenting or infertility. Uh, We also let you know about what resources we have added to our website that week. We add uh, five pieces of new content every week, and we let you know what those are. Uh, To sign up for our weekly newsletter, you can go to our website, creatingafamily.org. And on the top right-hand side, you can, there's a, um, the very top it says sign up for the newsletter. You can click on there. We have time for one last thing, and I thought it would be good to, we, uh, as I told you before we started, we have, we could continue, we, you and I could talk about this for another hour. Yes. Uh, there's so much to talk about. And then the book, uh, uh, the book, uh, the interracial adoption option, uh, talks about it goes into a lot of detail on all these things. But I thought it would be good if we kind of ended with more or less a summary. And and you talk about the the four things that people who are considering interracial adoption need to be able and are will need to be able and willing to do before they adopt across racial lines. Um, can you go through? And if you don't, I, I, it's always a little unfair to uh, spring this on somebody. Uh, just assuming you. Will no, I can tell you what page it is on the book, but if if you need me to, no, I've got I've got the four things. Gotcha. Um, so uh, we say that uh, someone who is thinking about becoming a uh, white parent of an African American child or really any child of color uh, needs to keep four things in mind. First, you need to be open to learning about the role of race. In culture, uh, so you know we've we've spent a lot of the last hour talking about the importance of recognizing race, um, and that race matters uh, in the lives of children of color, um, and so it's really important for white parents uh, to be open to learning about the role of race in in culture. Uh, second. You need to be willing to teach your child about his or her racial heritage um, and also to be proud of that heritage. And, again, you know, we really talked a lot about that in um, the last hour so that you have a burden to learn about the heritage and then to teach your child about it and to be very proud of that. Um, Third, to redefine yourself not as a white person positioned in this society, but now as a member of a multiracial family, uh, because you are not just a white person. You now are a person who's part of a family where your children are African-American. Society will see you differently. uh, And importantly, your children have to understand um, and know at every point that you recognize that you're part of this multiracial family and that you're not running for the safety, the security of your white identity, but you're there with them um, publicly as this family of color multiracial family. And then finally, to understand um, something that you just said, uh, that we will never experience the meaning of race in the same way that our children do, um, and that that is really a critical critical difference, um, and we have to understand that, recognize it, own it, um, and yet still be you know, willing to, to, to listen and try to understand the experience that our children are having. 
Excellent. And let me just add that Creating a Family, as the National Adoption and Infertility Education Organization, has lots of resources to help you along that way. Um, to find our resources on transracial adoption and transracial adoptive parenting, go to our website, creatingafamily.org. Uh, click on the word adoption in the horizontal menu across the top. Uh, then click on the A to Z resource picture. Uh, and it will take you to our resources and just uh, scroll down to transracial adoption. And we do have tons of resources. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Marlene Fine, for being our guest today on Creating a Family. I'd like to take a moment to thank a few more of our gold sponsors and to remind you that it is through their generous support that we can bring you this show as well as all the many resources, including the resources we have on transracial adoption uh, at, at we have on our website at Creating a Family. We have the law offices of James Fletcher Thompson. They are a South Carolina firm committed to adoption and assisted reproductive law. We have Children's Connection. They are an adoption agency with offices throughout Texas providing domestic infant adoption, embryo donation, home studies, and post-adoption support to families throughout the United States. We also have Nightlight Christian Adoptions. They are a pioneer in offering um, embryo uh, donation services as well as uh, other forms of both international and domestic uh, adoption uh, throughout the United States. And they have offices in California, Colorado, and South Carolina. And we have Bethany Christian Services. They provide post-adoption support to adoptees, adoptive parents, and birth parents through branches and through their national post-adoption contact center. The uh, post-adoption contact center is staffed by licensed adoption competent professionals and is available uh, from 8 to 8 Eastern time um, through, um, uh, throughout the United States. If you have enjoyed our show and want to help us grow, please rate this podcast on iTunes. Uh, you can uh, either, if you have an account on iTunes, if you have iTunes on your computer or phone, just simply go to it and type in Creating a Family, and you can um, the rating system will pop right up. Or you can go to our uh, radio page of our site, creatingafamily.org slash radio show, and click on iTunes, and it will take you there as well. If you want to participate in a discussion of the topics of this show, please check out my blog tomorrow at creatingafamily.org slash blog. Um, I really do encourage you to get this book uh, by Dr. Marlene Fine and Dr. Fern Johnson. Uh, the uh, title of the book is The Interracial Adoption Option, Creating a Family Across Race, and you can get it uh, certainly through Amazon, but you can, or any online uh, bookseller. But you could also go to your independent bookseller and request that they uh, get a copy of this book uh, and, and order it for you. Thanks for joining us today, and I will see you next week. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn, compare it to your neighbor's lawn, and complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance, which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... 
Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.